Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, the only podcast that I know of that slow walks through Dante's masterwork comedy. And we are toward the bottom of hell. We're in Canto 33 of Inferno. We have walked our way all the way down to the last great center of hell, Count Ugolino. In the last episode of this podcast, we went through Ugolino's monologue and we picked it apart for its interpretive difficulties, some things that may be a little historically distant from us, some things that may not quite make sense anymore. And we also talked a little bit about the way Dante changed Ugolino's story from the historical record. In this episode of the podcast, I'm going to talk about Ugolino's place in comedy. He is the last great sinner of hell, and this is the longest single speech of any member of the damned. So it seems that we should talk about what Ugolino is doing in comedy, or more specifically, in Inferno, as he sits here right toward the bottom of the first canticle of Dante's masterwork comedy. This is my English language translation. You can find it on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can print it off. You can make notes. You can drop a comment there. Otherwise, I'm going to read his monologue again, and then we're going to talk through some of the points about how Ugolino fits into Inferno. Raising his mouth from his savage meal and wiping it on the hair of the head he'd been gnawing from behind, the sinner began, You wish me to renew the despairing sorrow that already presses down on my heart just by thinking about it, even before I tell it. Well, if my words will be the siege which become the fruits of infamy for the traitor that I munch, you'll see me cry and speak at the same time. I don't know who you are, nor in what fashion you've made your way down here, but sure enough, it seems to me you're a Florentine when I hear your voice. You've got to know that I was Count Ugolino, and that this one is Archbishop Ruggieri. Now I'll tell you why I'm his neighbor. That the final result of his evil reckonings, despite my trust in him, was that I was seized and put to death. (laughs) There's no need to tell all that. But there's no way you could be able to learn how cruel my death was. Listen up and figure out if he wronged me. A little peephole in the hawk's mew that's now called by the name of hunger on account of me and in which others are yet to be shut up had already shown me through its slit several waxing and waning moons when I had a nightmare that tore open the veil of the future for me. This one appeared to be the master and the lord tracking the wolf and its cubs over the mountain that obscures Luca from the Pisans, driving lean, eager, and trained dogs. He had Gualandi along with Sismondo and Lanfranchi arrayed out in front of him. After a short run, the father and his sons were worn out. It seemed to me that the flesh was torn from their haunches with razor-sharp fangs. When I woke up, a little before daylight, I heard the cries of my own sons who were locked up with me, asking for some bread in their dreams. You are truly cruel if you're not already suffering at the things my heart was predicting for me. If this doesn't make you cry, what would? 
Then they woke up, and the time approached when our meal was usually brought up to us. We were awfully afraid because of our dreams. That's when I heard the nails being driven into the door down at the base of that horrible tower. That's when I looked at the face of my children without saying a word. I didn't cry. I'd turned into stone inside, but they cried. And my little Anselm said, You look so weird, father. What's up? Even then I didn't cry, nor offer a reply all that day and the following night until the sun shone on the world again. The moment a few rays of light shone into that sorrowful cell, I could see my own face stamped in their four faces. I chewed on my hands out of grief, and they, thinking I did what I did because I wanted something to eat, stood up all at once and said, Father, we'd have a lot less pain if you just eat us. You clothed us in this miserable skin, and you can peel it off. That's why... To spare them more grief, I calmed myself down. That day and the next, we didn't speak a word. Oh, hard earth. Why did you not open wide to swallow us? After we'd gotten to the fourth day, Gado threw himself at my feet, saying, My father, why won't you help me? At that he died, and as sure as you see me right now, I watched the other three fall one by one between the fifth and sixth days. At that point, utterly blind, I started groping over the corpses and calling for them for two days, even though they were dead. That's when fasting had more power than grief. When he'd said this, with his eyes rolling in his head, he sank his teeth into the wretched skull and held it tight like a dog with a bone. Okay, there's the big monologue again. The longest single monologue from any sinner in all of Inferno, including Virgil. There are bigger speeches ahead of us in Purgatorio, but we have to wait to get those. What I'd like to do now is I'd like to talk about the place of this speech in comedy. I'd like to go back and review the great sinners of hell. And then I want to talk about specific people we have already met on this journey who are reflected in this speech before finally coming back and trying to figure out what is Ugolino doing in Inferno so close to the bottom. First off, let's review the great sinners of hell. This is in terms of their monologues or their dialogues with the pilgrim Dante. We're not talking about Jason walking along with the seducers. If you remember, Virgil is very taken with Jason of the Argonauts fame because Jason appears unbowed under the lashings from the demons. And we're not talking about Master Adam with the falsifiers. While he is a despicable figure and perhaps, as I argued in this podcast, a prediction of the modern human being, he is nonetheless not one of the great sinners of hell because he lacks the narrative and dialogic complexity. And when I say dialogic complexity, I don't just mean the complexity of the dialogue, but I mean dialogic as in two parts. The great sinners of hell seem to have a 
dialogic relationship with language. That is, they're saying one thing and meaning another, or <laughs> they're meaning one thing, and yet something else is being meant by the poet behind them. There is a dialogic nature with truth and reality in their speeches. I'm also not talking about Pope Nicholas III upside down in his hole with the Simoniacs. While he's fascinating as a character, that whole bit seems so much more about the pilgrim coming for the first time into a truly prophetic voice of the denunciation of corruption in the church. Who then are the great sinners of hell? Well, my list would be Francesca da Remini up in Canto 5 with the lustful out on the wind. Francesca's speech, love did this, love does that, love makes me do this, is one of the great speeches of hell and one of the most difficult to interpret. I'd also put in this list Ferranata dei Uberti in Canto 10, the great Ghibelline warlord who rises up out of the burning tomb of the heretics and at first seems to get into a bit of a pissing contest with Dante the Pilgrim and then it all turns around after Cavalcante's appearance and they seem to try to meet on common ground Dante, this Guelph, and Ferranata, this Ghibelline. Then, in my list with Francesca and Ferranata, I would definitely put Pierre de la Vegna, the suicide, in Canto 13. Pierre's speech, while crafted, does nonetheless take part in this dialogic nature. He's trying to blame his suicide on the intrigue of gossip at court, but his speech is so elliptical. We have to bury into the speech to figure out the details of Pierre's death. After him comes Brunetta Latini in Canto 15, the great master, teacher, perhaps, of Dante. At least Dante wants us to think Brunetto is his teacher. Nonetheless, this great writer whose work is reflected inside comedy itself, a stylist of a kind of new vernacular style, yet at the same time a great master of classical learning. We find him with the homosexuals on the burning sands, well, the sands that are hot with the burning flakes of snow fire falling on them. He's got a preening, almost desperate disposition. Remember my tresor? Remember the book I wrote, he says, as he starts to run off. He just doesn't want to be forgotten. And he's the one who says to Dante, follow your star. What is it that makes a damned soul able to say to Dante, follow your star, this call to your destiny, out of the mouth of one of the damned? See what I mean? Dialogic nature, having it both ways, a kind of yin and yang, two sides of a coin. The next one I think we encounter is Ulysses in Canto 26, his great story of setting sail. Don't be an old man anymore, he says to his former crew. Let's set out past the Straits of Gibraltar they go until they catch a glimpse of Mount Purgatory and then are thrown down in a whirlpool in this rousing speech that seems tragic and heroic or, as we discussed endlessly, is it? The next canto, Canto 27, holds Guido de Montefeltro, yet another of the great sinners of hell. Guido's speech is not exactly dialogic in the way that it forces us into a yes-no, is it, isn't it pattern that, say, Francesca's does. 
until we get to his death and that bit where Francis comes for his soul and then it's stolen by a demon. And it's all so weird and curious at the end. It seems like Dante is making up bits about how souls are retrieved, but that's not how souls are retrieved. They end up on the shores with Karen, or we'll find out later the redeemed souls make their way to the Tiber River and wait for an angel to boat them across the world to Mount Purgatory, where they begin their ascent. That's not how souls die in Dante's comedy, by demons and saints grabbing a hold of them. So it forces us into a weird dialogic relationship with comedy as a whole— and then we come to Ugolino here in Canto 33. So there they are, Francesca Taramini, Ferranata de Uberti, Pierre de la Vegna, Brunetto Latini, Ulysses, Guido de Montefeltro, and now finally, Count Ugolino, who is offered the longest bit of real estate in all of Inferno. What can we draw from this list of the great sinners of hell? Well, I've already spoken about the dialogic nature of their speech, so let's speak a little more about it. All of these seven that I have listed off for you, there is a deep and fundamental ambivalence in what they say. All seven of them have caused reams of scholarship because they are so hard to pin down. It is not hard to pin Chaco the glutton down. It is not hard to pin Jason down walking around with the seducers. It's not hard to pin down those two hypocrites in their gilded leaden cloaks who are walking around the pit of the hypocrites and over Caiaphas stretched out on the ground. But these seven, it is very hard to pin them down. It's very hard to figure out the tragedy of Pierre de la Vagna or of Guido de Montefeltro, who tried to write his life at the end and then wasn't able to do it. These all force us to make decisions. Are we going to be on the side of what we know is true, they're the damned, or are we going to somehow stand up for the damned? No wonder then that these seven over the years have become romantic heroes. And I don't mean romantic as in, you know, love story with Ryan O'Neill. I mean romantic as in Wordsworth and Goethe, great Byronic figures who are either questioning their fate or they're standing up. Above their fate, even Francesca seems to rise somehow above our fate. And it's no wonder then that romantics in the 19th century took such great pleasure in these figures because they did seem to be Byronic heroes. Ulysses, think about him as a Byronic hero. Think here about Ugolino. Ugolino wants you to sympathize with him. You would be a hard person, he says, if you weren't already crying, knowing what's going to come. We're going to starve to death in this tower. Ugolino so wants to force an emotional reaction out of you. Francesca, she forces one out of the pilgrim. He faints after she finishes her speech. Oh, we read about Lancelot and Guinevere kissing. We turned to each other. I kissed my brother-in-law that day. <clears throat> we read no more, and the pilgrim faints. Ferenata, he forces rage out of the pilgrim, and then some kind of weird reconciliation, some kind of weird shift in attitudes, 
all of these characters are begging for something from the pilgrim and behind the pilgrim from the reader. So it's no wonder they are seen as romantic heroes. They do seem in some way deeply involved with some questions about the human condition. The way love can lead you astray, the way ambition can lead you astray, the way that you can try to manipulate your way through political alliances just to try to survive, just to try to grab hold of whatever kind of power you can find in this world. I'm reminded of that fabulous scene in Angels in America by Tony Kushner in which uh, uh, Roy Cohn is sitting at dinner with Joe Pitt and Roy Cohn is basically trying to get Joe to go to Washington, D.C. to be Roy Cohn's eyes in the Justice Department as charges are being brought up against Roy Cohn. Joe realizes he's being manipulated into this. And, oh, man, Roy Cohn gives this unbelievable speech about, you think, Joe, you're above this? This is, as he says, this is blood and bowels. This stinks. This is politics. And this is what you have to do if you want to take power in the world. I can't think of Ugolino's speech without seeing Roy Cohn riding behind it from Angels in America. I know that's really silly, but it's all bound up in my head. What I would say about all of these characters, all of these big speechmakers in Inferno is that there is deep characterization going on here. There is not deep characterization going on with Master Adam or with Jason or with Chaco the Glutton. But these characters, their speech deepens them, turns them into characters, what we think of as characters in the modern world. I can't really say that Chaco the Glutton, with his prediction of the white and black stripe, is a character in the modern sense of the word. He's a manipulated chess piece by Dante to get a point across about the strife that is tearing Florence apart. But these figures, when they speak, their speech is so vibrant, so alive, so full, that it forces us into questions about their identity, their humanity, their life purpose, whether they're damned righteously or not. It forces us almost scarily for Dante into a questioning of God's justice. What is Francesca doing here? What is Ulysses doing down here? And finally, of course, Count Ugolino, who definitely at the end of his speech wants us to say, what is Ugolino doing down here? Now, I want to tell you, Ugolino's down here because he is a particularly nasty fellow, but he wants us to focus on the tragedy of his death, not the ethics of his actions over the course of his life, as I detailed for you in the last episode of this podcast. Ugolino is certainly part of the great pairs of Inferno. We have Francesca and Paolo, we have Ulysses and Diomedes, and we have Ugolino and Ruggieri. These are our three great pairs in which one is the speaker and the other is silent in some way. Paolo does cry. We assume Ruggieri is in pain here, given that his brains are being eaten out, but we don't actually know that. Instead, Paolo Diomedes and Ruggieri don't 
add anything to the stories of their speakers, Francesca, Ulysses, and Ugolino. I would never put Adam and Sinon, Master Adam and Sinon, in this great pairing. I would never put Ferranata and Cavalcante, they don't even speak to each other, in this great pairing. But there are three great pairs, each with a speaker and a silent partner. I think that probably is important because I think it's a way in which Ugolino is linked back to Francesca and to Ulysses. In fact, Ugolino is linked distinctly to Francesca and the fifth canto of Inferno. When Ugolino begins, he says, You wish me to renew the despairing sorrow that already presses down on my heart just by thinking about it even before I tell it. This is a very close approximation to what Francesca says before she starts the second half of her speech in Inferno, Canto 5, lines 121 through 123. We seem with Ugolino to be called back to Francesca more than once. Ugolino says, you'll see me cry and speak at the same time. In fact, at line 126 of Canto 5, Francesca essentially says the same thing. And Ugolino says to our pilgrim, listen up and figure out if he wronged me. That phrase right there, he wronged me, see, know, learn how, if he wronged me. Surprise, ma offesa reminds me very much of Francesco, who is called an anima offensa, a wronged spirit. He is paired up with Francesca repeatedly. And of course, another way that he is paired to Francesca is that the overall tenor of both their speeches is I didn't do anything. In fact, what was done to me is far worse than anything I ever did. That seems to be the root of both their speeches. And isn't it interesting that when we pass beyond limbo and hit the first circle of the truly damned, I mean, the, the, the souls in limbo are damned, but you know what I mean. They're living in their ballast, their grassy lawn, their clear, pure water, <laughs> They're talking about philosophy all day long. It's a minor damnation, to say the least. And then we pass on down, pass minus to, in fact, these people who are the lustful and who are swirling out on the wind. And we get this big speech from Francesca. She starts our true descent amongst the truly damned, the stereotypical damned, Letting aside limbo, I know they're damned, but it's not the stereotypical notion of damnation. And we come all the way down to Ugolino, and he repeats certain phrases that Francesca uses. So Dante the poet is very deliberately setting us up here that Francesca and Ugolino are connected in some way, or he's bookending Inferno, or he's trying to get us to see, look, we came from there to here. What's the difference? We'll talk about that in a minute. Let's talk just for a minute about Virgil. Virgil, who hasn't said a word so far. When Francesca begins her speech about, you know, you want me to renew my despairing sorrow, it presses down on my heart so I can barely tell it, almost every commentator points to that in Francesca, as a reference to the second book of the Aeneid, when Aeneas starts to tell the tale of his escape from the destruction of Troy. And Aeneas basically says, 
gosh, I'm going to have to tell you this whole story. And it causes me to cry before I even start to tell it to you. In fact, he says it would cause the strong warriors of Thessaly to cry before they could even tell it to you. And now I'm going to have to tell it to you. Everybody recognizes that line from Francesca is out of the Aeneid. And it's rather rehearsed here. So not only is Ugolino quoting Francesca or referring back to Francesca, there's also this Aeneid reference in both. This is what we should just stop and say that is very curious. Aeneas is the hero of the Aeneid. He's the Trojan who founds the great empire of Rome. And for Dante, Aeneas is truly a heroic figure because indeed he does found this place where the church can come to its full fruit, where the church in Rome can blossom. But there's an irony here. Both Francesca and Ugolino at the beginning of the awful descent in Inferno and at the end of the awful descent make reference to Aeneas, the great epic hero. Why would you have the damned mutter the words that are essentially cribbed from the Aeneid, the words by which Aeneas begins the tale of his flight from the destruction of Troy. Why would you have the damned quote the words of an epic hero? This is part of why people are often so confused, and I too, confused by these speeches. Behind them sits a great epic hero who Dante admires, and yet here they are, damned. Is that a comment on the Aeneid, on Virgil, on Aeneas? Is it ironic? Am I supposed to wink? Is Dante supposed to wink back at me? Are we supposed to both understand that the Aeneid is not scripture? That in fact it is a flawed epic about the Roman gods and not about the Christian god? But yet we've had references to Jupiter from Capaneus as if that were the Christian god. You see, the complexity of it all begins to bear in on us. And to say simply, oh, Ugolino, he's damned. Oh, Francesca, she's damned. It's not that easy. There were more references to other sinners in Ugolino's speech. At the end, when he comes to the very end and he's dead, his children are dead, he dies, the whole thing goes down. It says, he, you know, he finished saying this with his eyes rolling in his head. He sank his teeth into the wretched skull of Archbishop Ruggieri and held it like a dog with a bone. That word there, eyes rolling in his head, that is a form of the same verb used for the end of Chaco's speech in The Gluttons. And there is a way, if you want to look at that, that's in Canto 6, line 91. There is a way in which Ugolino is connected to Chaco. A couple ways. One, the insanity of the damned. Chaco rolls his eyes back up in his head and falls back down into the muck of gluttony, never to be heard from, we're told again, until Judgment Day, as if he's almost gone insane with his prophecies about white and black strife. And here, chewing on the brains of another, 
clearly the insanity of the damned. And yet we trust Jocko and his prophecy. We trust that prophecy about the whites and the blacks. We trust that that's how the conflict's going to play out because, of course, Dante is post-dating his revelation. And so we're supposed to trust Chaco. The damned are not liars to Dante. Chaco is not a liar to Dante. And I would argue Ugolino is not a liar to Dante. In fact, the damned do not lie to the pilgrim. They lie to the demons. The barrator, the unnamed Navarrese, who many of the commentators identify as Ciampolo in the pitch of barratry with the demons with the hooks. Remember this whole thing? And the unnamed Navarrese soul claims he's going to call others up and then he slips out of the demons' hands and the demons fight each other. Remember all this bit? Okay, well, that guy, that unnamed Navarrese, he clearly lied to those demons and he got them to trust him before he jumped back into the pitch. But that's very different than than any of the damned lying to the pilgrim. I don't know that I can point to a moment in which the damned seem to say something to Dante that's not true. We trust them all the way down. There's another little rub. Why are we trusting the damned? Because, because the poet's setting it up this way. The poet is setting it up that the damned don't lie. But then that puts us in a very strange position. It puts us in the position of having to ferret under their words, to dig under their words to figure out what they really mean. It puts us in the position of, dare I say it, interpretation. Dante knows exactly what he's doing. He's making it hard. (laughs) Even here with Ugolino, who at the very end has a reference, a resonance, an echo from Chaco the glutton, who also prophesies about central Italian strife, the same strife, well, the same kind of strife, not exactly the same strife, but the same kind of strife that Ugolino makes manifest his entire life. Here's another bit of the damned who we've seen before. Here we see a soul ripping up another soul. We see Ugolino chewing on Ruggieri. We've seen souls ripped up before. In Canto 8, Filippo Argenti, he bites himself like Ugolino. He's torn apart. Ugolino bites himself. Ugolino's tearing another soul apart. There's a weird reference here to rage going on with Filippo Argenti. And I think we're supposed to see this because what Ugolino's monologue is, is controlled rage. In fact, it's rage in the service of getting you, me, the reader, and Dante, the pilgrim, to focus on the pathos, the sorrow of Ugolino's death, rather than the ethics, as I've already said, of his actions. This is the best kind of rage. It's directed. It's controlled. You know this as well as I do. When you can control, harness, tame your rage, and you can channel it, you can become unbelievably clear, unbelievably deceptive, unbelievably forceful. Ugolino recognizes the pilgrim as a Florentine. You're a Florentine when I hear your voice, he says. Who does that remind us of? Fernata, back in Canto 10. Fernata also recognizes the pilgrim by his speech. Also, 
Ferranato was a Ghibelline, and Ugolino has been a Ghibelline, and a Guelph, and a Ghibelline. They're both responsible for a kind of strife in Florence. Ugolino tried to, uh, what do I want to say, stoke that strife by offering those minor castles to the Florentines. Ferranata was part of the Ghibelline victory against the Guelphs, although Ferranata stood in the gap and said, oh, let's not burn Florence to the ground and even salt it so nothing can ever grow there. Ferranata essentially saved Florence. So they're both Ghibelline-ish. They both recognize Dante by his Florentine. But while Dante comes to some kind of reconciliation, I would argue, with Ferranata in Canto 10, there is no reconciliation here from the pilgrim. And that seems very important to the story. Let me say one more thing. Ruggieri, we have already seen a resonance from him. Although he is silent here, he is the nephew of Cardinal Ottaviano de Ubaldini. Cardinal Ottaviano de Ubaldini is the cardinal who's down in the tomb with Farinata. Remember when Farinata gets asked, who else is inside this tomb with you? Well, this is one of the figures who he mentions, this very Ruggieri who's here, his uncle. In fact, we're not done with this family. They're going to come up three more times at least in purgatory. (laughs) So this is a very prominent family. The resonance is swirling around Ferranata with Ugolino. But again, I want to just emphasize... In the Ferranata passages in Canto 10, there seems to be some kind of middle ground found between Dante the Guelph and Ferranata the Ghibelline. Here, the pilgrim is silent. Now, I have to tell you something that's going to happen, and we haven't gotten to it yet because we haven't passed through the passage far enough yet. But what's going to happen at the end of this is the poet is going to step out and condemn Pisa. This may give us a clue for what is going on here. In the Francesca episode, after she finishes her great monologue in two parts, the pilgrim faints. In the Ferranata episode, after the two-parter, in which first there seems to be enmity, and then there seems to be some kind of middle ground being sought between Dante and Ferranata, at the end of that, the pilgrim comes to some minor place of rest. I don't want to overstate it, but place of rest with Ferranata. Here, in the Ugolino section, the pilgrim will remain silent. There will be no reaction to this speech from the pilgrim. Instead, in the next passage, the poet will step out. Ferranata and Francesca get a response out of the pilgrim. Ugolino gets nothing out of the pilgrim except the story. The pact is fulfilled. Remember, Dante the Pilgrim says, if you tell me your story and if you were wronged, there's a kick, if you're wronged, I'll reimburse you up on earth. We said, I'll put your story in comedy. Does that mean, since the story's here, that the poet thinks Ugolino was indeed wronged? It pulls at those threads. It causes a dialogic problem inside the monologue. 
There's a reference to another center here connected to Ferenata, too. Remember at the end of this, Ugolino is groping over the bodies of his dead sons. We talked about this, that these are actually his grandsons and his sons, but Dante has changed it into four sons. This has a, for me, ring of cavalcante about it. Remember, Ferenata is talking to Dante, and then this figure comes up on his knees and sticks his chin, nose and chin, up over the top of the tomb. It's Cavalcante de Cavalcanti. He asks about his son Guido, and they have a little bit of a misunderstanding, and he misunderstands the pilgrim's verb tense, and he thinks his son is already dead, and he collapses back down into the tomb. Remember what Cavalcante says, where is my son? And it's such a ringing statement of sadness. Where is my son? There are very few fathers and sons in all of comedy. Here we have another example of fathers and sons, except while the Cavalcanti sequence seems pathetic, this sequence seems grotesque groping over the bodies of your dead sons. I see a link there, a transition, a development from a place of pathos to, what do I want to say, a ghastly nightmare. And I see a resonance with another set of sinners, Muhammad, Bertrand de Born, and the schismatics. Remember, they're walking around their pit of fraud, hacked apart by a demon, and then they have to continue walking on, Muhammad with his bowels hanging out, Bertrand de Born carrying his own head. By the time they get their 22 miles around their circle, they're healed, and the demon hacks them up again. This is a point in which we see bodies torn apart. We saw it with Filippo Argenti in the River Styx. Here with Ugolino, we see a head being torn apart and is reminiscent of these other sequences, except, and this is what it strikes me is so important, Filippo Argenti is torn apart by other members of the damned, and we're not exactly sure who they are. They're more of the wrathful. Muhammad, Bertrand de Born, Ali, and others are hacked apart by a demon. Once we get this far down in hell, there are no more demons hacking the souls apart. Instead, and this strikes me as incredibly important, Italians are eating Italians. I don't want to say that there are Italians in the modern sense of the word because there is no nation of Italy, but those on the Italian peninsula who speak similar languages and who are connected ethnically to each other in various family and racial alliances, they are eating each other. There is no demon tearing Ruggieri apart. Instead, he is being torn apart by a fellow central Italian peninsula dweller, or to use a really falsifying shorthand, a fellow Italian. Always, at the end of this, the Ugolino Ruggieri is worse. <laughs> it's worse than Francesca. It's worse than Farinata. It falls down here to full-on nightmare. So what is Ugolino doing in comedy? Like usual, 
I'm not going to come to any specific answer to this question. I'm going to offer you some answers, and you could think more about these. The first answer I'm going to offer you is from Robert Hollander, the now late dentista from Princeton. Basically, his claim is that Ugolino is at this point in comedy to test you, to see if you now know how to read a center right. We are simply given this story straight out without the help of the pilgrims fainting, without the help of Virgil's commentary. We're just given this story straight up because you've come so far in Inferno. Dante is essentially testing you. Do you trust the damned? I'm going to tell you that while I think that this is a theologically sound answer for Dante's Christianity, I'm not sure it fully works. And the reason I'm not sure it fully works is because I keep coming back to Ugolino crawling over the bodies of his sons while his sins on earth are manifold. And while he is a traitor, does anyone deserve to crawl across the bodies of their dead children while being locked in a tower? Is this not hell itself? Is this not the definition of a human nightmare? While it could be a test, if it is a test, as Hollander suggests, it is a very strong test. Essentially, this test is, can I turn off my emotions far enough to stomach this sort of justice? Unfortunately for me, the answer is no. A second way to think about this is Ugolino as a tragic figure, like Francesca D'Arrini and Brunetto Latini. These are tragic figures in which we see their fate thrust upon them. Brunetto with his great works, Francesca with her great love, and we see them tripped, slipped into sin. Well, maybe. Dante doesn't really think that you slip, slide into sin. Dante thinks you make a choice to do evil. We'll see this more fully on display in the theology of purgatory. But let's say that Dante is coming around in Inferno. I don't know that Dante has this fully worked out yet. But Dante is coming around to the notion that the cause of your damnation is yourself. You did it to yourself because of your choices. That's going to get fully expressed in Purgatorio. But at the same time... Francesca is tragic. Brunetta Latini is tragic. Ucolino's fate is horrific. Is it tragic? I don't know. And some of this, I have to tell you, I'm holding in abeyance until the next episode of this podcast in which we're going to talk about the theology that underlies Ugolino's speech. Believe it or not, there is all kinds of New Testament theology running under what appears to be an incredibly secular speech. We have to save a little bit of that discussion of whether this is a tragedy or not for the full discussion of its theology. So let's talk about a third thing that no one ever talks about. And that is that Ugolino claims in his dream that he's a wolf. Remember this? He's the wolf and the cubs and that Ruggieri is the master and the lord and he's whipping these landed powerful warlord families up and they're chasing the wolf and the cubs across the landscape and then the wolf and the cubs become the father and the sons. And I always think to myself, ah, 
that she-wolf in Canto One, the lupa, that is the final animal that drives Dante back down the slope toward the dark wood. I've never seen anybody connect the wolf here with the wolf there, and yet I can't help but do it. I know they're different genders. I understand that this is lupo. This is a male wolf in the dream, and that's a lupa, a female wolf. But at the same time, it's a wolf. When we get up to Purgatorio in Purgatorio Canto 20, we'll find that the wolf there is a symbol for avarice. And you'll hear me talk endlessly when we get up to Purgatorio 20 that I think Dante is trying to nail down the first canto <laughs> of Inferno and make it clearer when, in fact, it's still muddy no matter how much nailing down. And he's going to define the wolf in Purgatorio 20 as the sin of avarice itself, which would then give us a full interpretation of the first canto of Inferno. My problem is I don't think the 20th canto of Purgatorio was written when the first canto of Inferno was written. And so I can't say that one is the key to the other. But I can say that by this point, the wolf of the first canto is probably written. And although it is a different gender, I ask the question, in what way is Ugolino like that wolf? In what way is Ugolino a blocking figure? In what way could we be consumed by Ugolino? Because remember, Dante says of the she-wolf that she has consumed so many, and she seems on the verge of consuming the pilgrim. In what way, then, could we be consumed by Ugolino? A wolf is a strange image to give for yourself. It's not a positive image. I mean, here's having this dream about him and his kids running across the landscape as they're being chased by Ruggieri and his dogs, these warlord families. You don't exactly hear a positive assessment in Wolf. If I see you know, a stag and some fawns or running across the land, it's a lot more positive, right, than a wolf. A wolf is not generally considered in fairy tale, in folklore, even in Dante's own work. A wolf is not a positive symbol. Wolves, blocks. How is Ugolino a block? How is Ugolino consuming us. He's consuming Ruggieri. How could he then consume me like that wolf on the first slope? Or let's say this about Ugolino. This may be his final and specific place for me in comedy. His narrative moves from clarity to confusion. That doesn't sound very good, does it? How about this? He moves from narrative clarity to interpretive murk. That last line, that's when fasting had more power than grief, that is so difficult to interpret. Did he eat his kids? You can't make a full determination from that line. And I think that's the point. Let me play my cards for you. I think Ugolino wants you to believe he ate his children. I think Ugolino didn't eat his children. I think he died of starvation. I think he is now trying to make his story as pathetic as possible, but the damned can't lie to the pilgrim. And so, out of this incredibly clear narrative that lists off the number of days, we end up in interpretive murk, because that's where Ugolino wants us. Then he turns back to 
eating Ruggieri. He wants you to think that his rage at Ruggieri right now is predicated on the very actions he took up on Earth. I don't actually think he ate his kids because, listen, they would be at least two days old and they would not be, to say the least, smelling the best up in that tower. I don't think it's possible, but I think Ugolino wants you to think he ate them because I think he thinks that enlarges the pathos of his story. It makes him a more sympathetic character and it explains his current position in hell chewing on the head of another. It makes sense of all of that, but it's not making sense. Instead, the line comes down to fasting had more power than grief. That's Merck. And you know what? That's Inferno. <laughs> that's Ferranata. That's Francesca. That's Brunetto. That's Pierre de la Vigne. That is Inferno. You see, things seem so clear on first pass, but the more you think about it, the more murky it gets. Where do we get to the 34th canto ahead of us? The more it seems clear, the less clear it is. Oh my gosh, just wait until we get that 34th canto and Virgil's opening invocation in Latin and just, oh my gosh, we've reached the bottom of Helen Virgil suddenly speaking Latin and it's just the wildest craziness. It's so inferno. It seems clear. It seems like an easy journey. Walk across the universe. Sure. Sure, let's set out. One foot right in front of the other, as they say. And yet you realize the more you walk, the murkier it gets, the more it's hard to tell what's going on. And in this way, Ugolino is the best figure to end in fair now because the poet moved us from clarity to murk. That's what the poet has been doing all along. And while the theology is certain and secure in many places in Inferno, we are nonetheless left at the end of Inferno with more questions than we could ever answer. This was a long podcast about Ugolino. I had to get through all the ways in which he wraps up Inferno in so many ways. Sorry it lasted so long, but I just needed to get it all out. In the next episode of this podcast, we're going to talk about the theology that's running underneath this or the perversions of theology that are running underneath this. We may come to some more conclusions about Ugolino, and then we're going to have a final Ugolino episode two from now, in which we'll do a final assessment and move on in the passage to the condemnation of Pisa. To do all of that, subscribe to this podcast and please rate it. If you are a regular follower of this podcast, I would really appreciate your dropping down, giving it a rating, and giving it a comment. Write a review, please. I will thank you forever in eternity. (laughs) And please don't write a review that ends in Merck. (laughs) Please write a nice, clear review. (laughs) Unlike one in which the last line is subject to multiple interpretations. Sorry. Please come back next time. We got more Ugolino to do. I can't wait. I'm Mark Scarborough. See you then. Mm-hmm.